Okay, well, why don't we pray one more time together as we begin our study of God's Word today. Let's, let's pray. Pray with me. Father, thank you uh, for just the truths that we read, the truths that we study, the truths that we sing. We're reminded as we sang today, Lord, that we come to you empty-handed, recognizing, Lord, that we have nothing in ourselves to offer to you, nothing in ourselves that would commend us to you other than your sovereign grace and the good pleasure of your will. And so, Lord, we pray that you would show us the wonder of your grace, that you would reveal to us now the glory of your name as we think about the precious inheritance that you have in the saints, that you love your people, you vindicate your people, you protect your people, you will deliver your people. And in the midst of the fire, in the midst of persecution, you sustain your people. And so we pray, God, that you would help us now and uh, we pray that you would show us wonderful things from your law today. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a very uh, sobering passage of Scripture today, and one that I've been looking forward to for, for some time. What Paul does in this text is he shows us that in the church and in the world, there are going to be imitators and persecutors And ultimately, there will be the wrath of God. Imitators, persecutors, and the wrath of God. We take the very first thing, which is the principle of imitation. You see that there in verse 14. He says, brethren, you became imitators of the churches of God, as he qualifies them as being in Christ Jesus, that are in Judea. And this imitation, of course, has to do with their willingness to, to endure and to suffer persecution. He says, For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. And so right away, we're seeing a commendation. We're seeing that the Apostle Paul is commending the churches, or the church of Thessalonica, because of their imitation of faith. That's our first point, the imitation of faith. Now, we know that the imitation of faith is all over the Bible, whether we are imitating God, whether we are imitating Christ, whether we are imitating Paul or the apostles or other believers or church leaders, or as here, imitating other churches, the imitation principle is all over Scripture. But in this text, imitation is revealed in two ways. Number one, it is revealed in our faithful commitment to the Scriptures. I mean, that's what verse 13 was all about, remember? For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So there has to be, first of all, in order to be faithfully imitating the faith of other genuine believers, and really to be in genuine faith, to have a claim upon genuine Christianity, authentic Christianity. We have to imitate the faith of others by our commitment to Scripture. Uh, Many people err at this point, especially under persecution. I mean, there was a time in church history where 
uh, under emperors like Domitian and Nero and others, it was not easy to be a Christian. A public profession of faith could very easily cost you your life. And that's not to say anything about today. I mean, today, sociologists, especially Christian sociologists, have concluded that we live in the most persecuted time in the history of the church. Uh, So if you think persecution is just something relegated to the early church or the time of the Bible, it's not. It's prevalent everywhere today. You are persecuted for the faith. I mean, let's not forget that persecution does not just mean martyrdom. But persecution also means being insulted. Uh, Persecution also means being uh, uh, derided or being somehow mistreated in any form or fashion for the faith. I mean, we were out doing evangelism last night, and I would say that we experienced a level of persecution. Um, And I think we forget that. But in the midst of that persecution, what is required of us is that we remain faithful to the Word of God. That we don't lose our grip on our commitment to Scripture. I want to draw your attention to a couple of the sayings of Jesus. In John chapter 14, look at John chapter 14 and John chapter 15. In two places here, Jesus makes it absolutely clear that what will sort of authenticate our faith is whether or not we are committed to His Word. Notice what Jesus says in John 14, 23. He says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and he will come to me, and, make our, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so there Jesus is making it very clear that tantamount to claiming to love Christ is abiding in his word, is keeping his word. And yet, what do you find so much today in popular culture? What did we hear yesterday on the streets as we were doing evangelism? How many people claim to love God, love Jesus, but they are all compromising God's Word. They're compromising their conviction of God's Word. They don't want to live by the standard, the truth of the Bible A compromise like that is everywhere, whether we're talking about theological liberalism, whether we're talking about personal compromise, convictions in our own lives, whether we know something to be right and do not do it, whatever it is. Today, evangelicals everywhere are caving in on all sorts of issues. You know that. They're caving in everywhere. I mean, today it's like the shibboleth moment of the evangelical church is now whether or not you... Uh, will stand with the Word of God on subjects like abortion and homosexuality and other things like that. It just becomes absolutely crystal clear where a person really is in the faith as their commitment to Scripture becomes clear. But I'll remind you that Jesus also said, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. This is John fifteen twenty. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And watch this. If they keep my word, they will keep yours also. So part of being a genuine, true disciple of Jesus Christ, and whether or not our church has faithfully come into the stream of salvation, is whether or not we have a faithful commitment to Christ or to His word. Actually, this imitation of faith, is my that's my second point, 
is that it's also revealed in our faithful commitment to Christ. These two things are essentially inseparable. Uh, You can't claim to have a faithful commitment to Christ if you don't have a faithful commitment to His Word, and you cannot have a faithful commitment to His Word if you do not have a faithful commitment to Him. You can't just espouse respect for the Bible. You can't just espouse Christian moralism, but yet have no commitment to Christ Himself. You know, a lot of people suffer persecution for various reasons. I don't know if you know this, but there are, right alongside of good, his, uh, biblical, orthodox Christian missionaries, there are Mormon missionaries and Jehovah Witness missionaries, and all over the world, people are being persecuted. Catholics are persecuted. Mormons are persecuted. Hindus are persecuted. Buddhists are persecuted. Some sects of Islam are persecuted by Islam. Uh, persecution is everywhere. Persecution is not in and of itself, a badge of salvation. You must be persecuted, number one, for the truth. Number two, you must be persecuted for the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is our privilege, after all. I was watching a testimony of a Persian uh, brother that converted in Iran, and he said that the missionaries had been coming to Iran, and they had been trying to work covertly. And so what they had done is, you know, some people refer to it as the insider movement, the camel method of, of missions. Uh, basically, what it is is attempting to do missions in really hard Muslim regions of the world by compromising the Christian message, even going so far as to eliminate certain uh, uh, phrases from Scripture like the Son of God because that doesn't, you know, that doesn't bode well in the Muslim world. And so they're trying to, in a sense, compromise the message and, and sort of water it down to avoid those kind of confrontations with Muslims who do not acknowledge the sonhood, the sonship of Jesus Christ. But I'll never forget that this, this Iranian said that these missionaries had erred and they had begged them to stop compromising the sonship of Christ. He said, and I'll never forget, he said, it is a privilege to suffer for Jesus Christ. We're not trying to hide our faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It is an honor to die for Christ. And I thought, wow, how incredibly probing is that for ourselves. Look at, uh, turn with me in your Bibles, though, to Philippians chapter 1, because when there is persecution, when there is this level of commitment to Christ and persecution that results, God is doing two things, and I've pointed this out several times. In Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, we learn that persecution is actually a two-sided uh, token, if you would. It's a, it's a sign of two things, namely salvation and judgment. Look at what Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that Whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Watch this now, verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents. Because the background of Philippians is that the church of Philippi also was suffering some some form of persecution. He says, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. In other words, anytime the presence of persecution is there, there is a sign there. What is the sign? That God is saving His people simultaneously as He judges the world of unbelief. It's really remarkable. We are commended when we, like the churches around the world who are being persecuted, even martyred, when we remain faithful and endure to the end with faith in our heart, 
with God's word on our lips, with Christ as our glory and as our ambition. This level of endurance is not produced, however, by mere courage or the resilience of the human spirit, brothers and sisters. It is a result of salvation. It is the byproduct of regeneration. Regeneration leads to perseverance. That perseverance is not of ourselves. It is granted to us by the grace of God. He strengthens us to embrace persecution and to suffer faithfully through it. Well, there is the imitation that we are called to, even as the Thessalonians here are being commended, but there's also the persecutors of the faith. Notice how Paul focuses in on them. After he says, you know, that he thanks God for this church, and he says, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches. But notice what he says. For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but are hostile to all men. Wow, that's a, that's a mouthful. But it's really important um, that we get this right. That the persecution of faith is something that will be with the church to the end of the age. It's been there since the dawning of time. We can say the persecution began in the garden when the serpent persecuted the first covenant community. Adam and Eve persecuted their faith, challenged and undermined their faith, and blasphemed their God. And of course, persecution was also present at the very dawning of civilization. Cain, after all, killed his righteous brother Abel. And uh, persecution has been there. It will be there. Matter of fact, turn with me in Thessalonians. In this letter, just look down to chapter 3. The Apostle Paul reminds the church so that they have no sort of confusion on this issue that persecution is, in fact, ordained by God. Let's get that straight, brothers and sisters. Persecution is not something outside of God's control. Uh, when When someone dies through martyrdom, on the mission field, God did not make a mistake. God did not fail that Christian missionary. And so many people are moved at the sight of that. I mean, in church history, there's a movement called the Donatist movement. because, And what it dealt with was that when persecution during the Roman Empire got so bad, I mean, you're talking somewhere around the 3rd century here, when persecution became so hot and heavy, people were apostatizing from the church, and then they wanted, after persecution subsided, they wanted to come back into the church. And so that was a big controversy. But it will always be here as long as we live in this present evil age because God has ordained it. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, we can no longer endure it no longer. We thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And that's a result of persecution. That's because the Apostle Paul, um, right in the midst of Acts chapter 16, 17, 18, and, 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 and on from there, the Jews were constantly pursuing him, constantly driving him out from one city to the next, one city to the next. And he says, And we sent Timothy, our brother, God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Watch this now. So that no one will be disturbed by these afflictions. In other words, so that your faith would not be moved by these persecutions. And he says, for you yourselves know that we have been what? Destined 
for this. Now, that destiny is not a result of blind fate. Hello, we don't believe in Star Wars, right? This is not, you know, the good side of the force versus the bad side of the force, and we're going to, you know, see who wins. No, no, no. It doesn't work at that. That's like a Neoplatonic understanding of dualism, this kind of the, the forces of good and the forces of evil, and we'll see what happens in the end. That's not at all biblical Christianity. The biblical worldview understands that everything is beneath the sovereignty of God. God ordains all things, whatever shall come to pass, including the persecution of his people. He ordains it for our good. He ordains it for our purity. He ordains it for His glory and the mysterious sovereignty of God and the eternal bowels of His wisdom. He has ordained that missionaries die for the gospel. And as long as we try to get God off the hook, our, our theology will suffer because of that. We understand that God is everything that God ordains is for our good, even our suffering. We need to go no further than Job to be reminded that whether it's personal suffering or global suffering in the church and through persecution, God ordains it all and is sovereign over all of it. And that should be a comfort to us. Thank God, God is in charge of my trials. Could you imagine if some unknowable, unknown force was really controlling all the events in our lives? We would be sort of subject, we would be victims to chance. That's not the biblical worldview whatsoever. Paul says that you wouldn't be moved by this. And he says, uh, I think I went too far here. Yeah, there I am. It's a different verse in Thessalonians. He says, indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. So it it came to pass, as you know, for this reason... When we could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. Watch this now, guys. This is really important here. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What's Paul talking about there? What Paul's saying is that the tempter, Satan, the devil, the devil could take advantage of the church through persecution to get you to lose your grip on faith. And so that he would fear that he had, in fact, labored in vain that ultimately this church would apostatize in the presence of suffering, as so many people have. We also see here the universal hostility of the world. It's not just hostility coming from the hands of the Gentiles. It's not just hostility coming from the hands of the Jews. It's hostility coming from both Jew and Gentile. Why? Because there is a universal hostility against Christ and the gospel and against the church. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. What does it say here? You endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. And by the way, that word countrymen actually means people of your own race. Uh, because he's trying to stress you know, how, how close to home this hit. I mean, these are your own people are persecuting you. What does Jesus, what does the Gospel of John say there in John chapter 1, verse 11? Jesus came to his own, and his own, the, the, the people that should have received him, his own did not receive him. But all that did receive him to them was granted to believe. And so, just like Jesus, the church will be persecuted at times by your own countrymen. 
even as the church of Judea did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus, the prophets, and drove us out. There is a universal principle of hostility towards the church because the church and the world are diametrically opposed. Now, what is the world? Is the world simply society? Is the world simply humanity? Is the world simply uh, the culture around us? Well, maybe. But I would venture to say that probably... One of the best definitions of what the world is in this pejorative sense, in a negative sense, in a sinful sense, is defined for us in the phrase that's found in Colossians and Galatians and other places, the elementary principles. The elementary principles, you've heard me talk about this before, it's that sort of universal worldview that every non-believer shares. It's a worldview that is devoid of God. It is a worldview that is comprised of human reason, philosophy, ethics, religion, morality, that does not have God's law as its foundation and does not have Christ as its source of knowledge. Because as Colossians 2, 2 and 3 tells us, Christ is the source of knowledge. He is the source of where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. Uh, The world can be defined as that aspect of humanity that rejects that, that rejects that Christ is the source of morality, the source of reason, the source of of, of knowledge, all of that. But there's also a universal condemnation. Notice the phrase here, they are not pleasing to God. What the world does, and here in the context here, he's speaking specifically of the Jews. We'll get back to that in a second. But what the, the world does through persecution ultimately offends God. Before it breaks our hearts, before it's an offense to us, before we take it personal, God takes it personal. Don't you remember what Jesus told the Apostle Paul when he appeared to him there on the, on the road to Damascus? He knocked him off his horse, remember? And he said what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so all Christian persecution, Christ takes it personal. And there is universal condemnation for any and every group that will afflict and persecute the church. Oh, that's a sobering idea. It's a sobering thought. I mean, how often do we think about that when we're, we're being persecuted or we're being in, insulted by somebody because of Christ? That that person is going to be judged by God. That that person stands under the wrath of God. Look with me to the next letter, Second Thessalonians. Because there, continuing the vein of thought here, persecution... I think we need to remember that, brothers and sisters, is that in the New Testament, largely the background, the, the, the overall background of the New Testament church is persecution. Uh, this, is a, this is a beaten and battered people. Uh, these are people that are constantly having to pay the highest price for following Christ. And look at what it says there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning of verse 6. I mean, this is one of the most powerful, strongest passages on what happens to the world that persecutes the church. He says, after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted 
and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now notice when the relief comes. It comes at the parousia. It comes at the second advent, the second coming of Jesus, but not before then. See, we are living in a fantasy world. If we think, if Christian, uh, 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 you know, if, 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 if Christian mission just gets culturally minded enough, we can relieve some of the suffering that we're experiencing. If we can just sort of capitulate a little bit more towards culture, speak their language a little bit more, sort of cave in on non-essential issues with the culture, maybe we can reduce the amount of suffering that we're suffering under the culture. No, 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 no. No, we are promised persecution until Christ returns. Matter of fact, the saints under the altar in Revelation are crying out, Oh, how long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? And what does God say to them? A little, not yet, he says, for there are more of you to come. Talking about martyrs. There are more of you to come. But when Christ returns... He will deal out retribution. That's vindication for you and I and for all of the church of God. Retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now, there's a bit of a controversial issue there in terms of the translation, the proper translation of that verse, whether it's literally away from the presence of the Lord or by the presence of the Lord. It's a very exegetically tricky, thorny passage. That's your homework. So don't ask me to resolve it right now. Uh, At present, uh, I agree with the present translation of the NASB. Away from the presence of the Lord, which means that that is a sign of a curse. To be thrown and cast away from God's presence is God, in a sense, anathematizing that person. So it could very well be that. that God is, in a sense, giving them their final consignment of judgment, which is to be removed from the presence of God, meaning without any hope of restitution at that point, no reconciliation. How dreadful. How dreadful is the human condition without Christ because ultimately it is hopeless. It is hopeless. There are imitators, there are persecutors, and then there's the wrath of God. And the wrath of God has the final word. Look at what it says here in the text. They are not pleasing to God, but they are hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. I I think there could scarcely be a more controversial subject in all of the church than the wrath of God. I mean, let's be honest. We should should do a survey and probe preachers, uh, myself included. When was the last time that you preached extensively on the wrath of God? I I would venture to say that some preachers have never preached on the wrath of, directly on the wrath of God. I'd venture to say that this doctrine is at, as neglected as anything else, maybe more than anything else. 
Because we don't like the thought of a wrathful God. We want a God we can manage. We want a God that we can sort of, you know, negotiate with. We want a God, in other words, in our own image. Even within the hearts of the believer, there's a hesitation, there's a fear, there's a trembling. And rightly so, there's a trepidation as we approach the subject of the wrath of God as we think about our family, our friends, our children, our loved ones. Understanding that the wrath of God is deadly serious. And that it is coming upon a world of disobedience. The wrath of God is so sanctifying, brothers and sisters. Don't neglect the study of the wrath of God in your life. There's a volume by Jonathan Edwards entitled The Torments of Hell. The Torments of Hell. Perhaps one of the strongest books ever produced on the subject of God's wrath. Don't say that Jonathan Edwards got everything right about the doctrine of hell. But as you read that that type of, 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 uh, of, uh, of a book like that, those, that level of exposition into the wrath of God, you begin to see how much it's neglected in the church today. And hopefully we will not. Hopefully we will give the wrath of God its place. But let me, let me show you a couple things here. First of all, let's understand that the wrath of God is both just and it is inevitable. Number one, God's wrath is deserved. In other words, it's just. It is deserved. And in the context here, notice what Paul does. He goes from describing the persecution of the Thessalonians under their own countrymen, the Greeks, to now going back to an exposition of Jewish persecution. As he says, uh, as he says here, even from the Jews who, speaking of the Jews, killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Now, this is what's interesting, is that even in the Greek text, the specificity of Paul here, I say that because it's kind of, if you were looking at the Greek text, it's kind of awkward. The way it reads literally is, the Lord, they killed Jesus. Now, why do you think he does that? He could have easily said it the other way. He could have easily said they killed the Lord Jesus. That's not how he puts it. He puts the Lord first, then emphasizes that they killed, and then last of all was Jesus. I would venture to say the reason he does that is because he's uh, he's trying to magnify the gravity of the evil that was committed in the murder of Jesus. He's trying, to grat- he's trying to magnify just how heinous the sin of the Jews is at this juncture. It's really amazing. The Apostle Paul here brings this indictment upon the Jewish people. And it's very comprehensive. Did you see how he, in a sense, is sort of broad-brushing the entire history of the Jewish people? Because he doesn't just mention Jesus. He also mentions the prophet. And then he even says they're hostile to all men. I mean, it's very, very comprehensive. Jesus himself taught that the Jewish people, by rejecting them, were being rejected by God. I want to talk about that a little bit, but look at uh, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 24. I could just read it to you, but in Matthew 27, 24, we see just the level, the extent of this blind arrogance that was leveled against the Lord of glory who they murdered, who they killed without shame. It says in verse 24, Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing. 
Because remember, Pilate was attempting to release Jesus. He was attempting to, you know, offer somebody else like uh, Barabbas or somebody like that. But they wouldn't have it. He says, rather than starting a riot, he says, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. Wow, even publicly demonstrating that he wanted no part of the guilt of of what was about to happen in the murder of Jesus. He washed his hands in front of them as to say, this is on you, it's not on me. I washed my hands of it. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Pilate can now be excused for his sin and persecution of Christ. He was, he did have a part in it, of course, as Acts chapter 4 tells us. He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. To what? To their chant of crucify, crucify, crucify. And he's saying, see to that yourself and listen to the abomination of the people. The people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Wow. The dastardly evil that was involved in the murder of Jesus. And a matter of fact, this is all over the New Testament. If you just look at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, chapter 5, 7, 10, 13, the murder of Jesus is brought up back time and time again to emphasize that the Jews are guilty of murdering their Messiah. Isn't that horrible just to think about? It was they that were not pleasing to God. Not only did they murder the Messiah, but they have a long legacy of being on the wrong side of redemptive history. Paul says they also persecute the prophets. They killed the prophets. And just to capture the spirit of that, in 1 Kings chapter 19, listen to the words of Elijah. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, but the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have torn down your altars, and they have killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it. This is a prophet on the run from the state of Israel, from the Jewish people themselves. He's hiding in a cave, for crying out loud. They're persecuting the prophets to that extent. And here he is, indicting the Jewish people all the way back then of being prophet killers. Now, finally, let's, let's turn to Matthew chapter 23, because nobody gave a more scathing indictment of the Jewish persecution of the Messiah and of Christ than Jesus himself. In Matthew 23, beginning in verse 29, listen to the words of Christ. I don't know when the last time was you read this, but as I read this, I was just stunned at what Jesus said publicly to the Jews. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you would think they'd get off the hook then because it wasn't they weren't part of the generation that did this, right? No. Jesus says, You testify against yourself that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Incredible. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? So much for Jesus just talking about love all the time. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, 
There he's talking mainly about the apostles. And he says, Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, just like Paul. From city to city. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all of the righteous blood shed on earth. Wow! Isn't that amazing what Jesus is saying there? From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And Paul's comprehensive indictment of the Jewish nation extends to hostility to all men, not just Jesus or the prophets and the apostles. This is a scathing rebuke to the Jewish nation. And we'll get to that exactly why. But let me just bring out some historical data on this. The Jewish nation, for some reason, became haters of the world, not lovers of the world. And what I mean by that is humanity. Instead of loving their fellow man, they hated their fellow man. Uh, Historically, Jeffrey Wymup has an incredible um, list of historians that kind of speak um, uh, unanimously on this issue. Listen to what he says in his commentary on Thessalonians. He says, initially, these are harsh words, and they sound like those made by many, many other ancient writers who reacted negatively to the strict separation that many Jews practice between themselves and other ethnic groups. For example, the Roman historian Tacitus claimed that the Jews felt hostile and hatred to all men. The Egyptian Apion charged the Jews with regularly swearing by, by divine oath, quote, to bear no goodwill to any foreigner and especially to none of the Greeks. That's in uh, Josephus. The Roman satirist Juvenal assert, asserted that the Jews were, in, were an unfriendly race who denied even the most common act of hospitality to strangers. Diorodus Siculus, a Greek historian, wrote that Jews looked upon all people as their enemy and that they made their hatred of humankind a tradition. The Philostratus, uh, 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 a Greek sophist and a Roman imperial, uh, in the Roman imperial period, claimed that the Jews, quote, have long been in revolt not only against Rome, but against humanity. So apparently, universally, historically, the Jews have been known for their universal hatred of their fellow man in diametric opposition to the Levitical law that told them to love their neighbor. But what is Paul talking about here? I don't think he's just indicting them just for this kind of, of, of sort of general universal hatred of all mankind. Because he goes on to elucidate a little bit further here. Notice what he says. He says, they're hostile to all men. And then he almost explains what that really looks like. Verse 16, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Now, that's interesting because it almost seems as if what makes their hatred of mankind so vile is that they hate mankind so much that they would even hinder the message of salvation to reach mankind. Could there be anything more vile than that? A murder is vile, but what about spiritual murder? Hindering a person from living in this life is one thing. Hindering a person from living an eternal life is something altogether different. 
They kept the key of knowledge away from the people. They didn't want people to discover salvation outside of their aristocratic system of high, the hierarchy of religious authoritarianism that they had, they had developed that was crystallized in the time of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin and all of that. This is a scathing rebuke to Israel as a nation that has lost its way, a nation that completely reneged on its responsibility. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah 46, 51, 60 that they were to be a light to the world, that they were to be a light of salvation to the nations all around. But they were not. Instead, they hated the nations. Jesus, the true Israel of God, Messianic Israel, the true Israel of God, He did what they could not do. That's why these passages that speak about the nation of Israel being a light in the midst of darkness to the Gentiles is picked up and attributed directly to Jesus Christ. Because He did what national Israel failed to do. Thereby fulfilling God's law. Thereby fulfilling all righteousness. As for Israel, their rejection of the Messiah really was the final stroke of their covenant displeasure to God and their disobedience to the law in hindering the gospel to go to the Gentiles. Notice also that the wrath of God is inevitable or what we could call dependable. Because they always fill up the measure of their sins, it is just. And because it is just, it is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Notice what it says. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. In other words, God keeps His word either to bless or to curse. And Israel is now under the curse of God. I think it brings up a very uh, contemporary debate. Anybody see the inauguration of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem? Anybody watch that? I did. And i got to be honest with you, I had mixed feelings about that. Okay, fine, the Jewish people, they're allowed to have you know, their capital wherever they want it. Fine, okay, whatever. I mean, that's what the politicians tell us, right? It's a whole other thing to see evangelicals in a Zionistic frenzy celebrating uh, what they think is some sort of biblical prophecy being fulfilled and sort of you know, just having these convulsions over this Zionist movement. I think to myself, I'm sitting there thinking, what? Uh, has Jeff Jeffers ever gone down to the Western Wall and tried to have a conversation with an Orthodox Jew? I have. I've sat in the rabbi's tunnel talking to Orthodox Jews. And you know what they tell me? They tell me that they hate Jesus Christ. They tell me that he is not God's son, that he's a bastard and an imposter. That's to put it lightly. You read the Talmud, you read the, you read the Mishnah, you read the rabbinical traditions of the Jews, and there you will find vile blasphemies against Jesus Christ, so vile that I can't even read them back to you. The Jewish people detest Christianity. They detest it. Uh, if That's if they're religious. What you find in Israel is that most people are either altogether non-religious, they're either agnostic, atheist, or postmodern, or they are ultra-religious. And the ultra-religious, they reject the gospel just as much as the liberal uh, uh, population does. It's remarkable. You think about what Israel is today. I don't celebrate the birth of Israel in that sense. I don't celebrate the developments in Jerusalem today in that sense. Why not? Because they have gay pride parades. 
because they mock God. I mean, they claim to believe in the Pentateuch. Have they forgotten what the Pentateuch teaches? I mean, Netanyahu is standing there publicly praising all of the wonderful gay rights that Israel celebrates. They have some of the vilest homosexual parades right down the street in broad daylight committing acts that are just abominable. And we're supposed to celebrate what this nation is doing? I don't think so. Now, folks, if we think of it biblically, Israel as a nation, Israel as an institution of God has been toppled. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus, he made this so crystal clear. I, I, I don't know what dispensationalists are thinking, just to be frank. And today is like make enemy day for me. I don't know what they're thinking after reading passages like this. Matthew 21, 42, Jesus said, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Wow, look at that. That bit of prophetic sovereignty of God, absolutely, exhaustively sovereign, down to the very rejection of Jesus as Messiah, so that he would become the cornerstone. He says, Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, but the Greek word is ethnos, meaning nation. This is a very intentional way of Jesus using a phrase that was so near and dear to the Jewish people, namely that they are the chosen nation. And now Jesus saying it will be given to a different nation that do what? That produce fruit of it, that is of the kingdom. The kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but, whoever it, but on whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. This is, in a sense, their embodiment of the serpent in Genesis, who, although he will bruise the Messiah on the head, the Messiah's foot will crush him. In the same way, they may bruise the stone, but the stone will grind them to powder devastating. Now turn over to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, Jesus says, and you know this verse, especially if you watch James White, you know this verse. Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. And then the part of the verse that no Arminian on earth can read correctly. And some Calvinists can't even read it correctly. I've heard them. What does it say? How often I wanted to gather your children together. It doesn't say how often I wanted to gather you. It says, I wanted to gather your children. Why does he say that? The way that a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. So what's the indictment? Again, the indictment was that the official state, the nation, Israel, and all of its leaders, religious and otherwise, they hindered the people from pursuing the real message of salvation that was to be found not in them, not in their authoritarian aristocracy, right? Their religious, their religiosity that they had built, this hierarchy leading all the way up to Caiaphas himself and other 
high priests that were fraudulent and corrupted by this time, but it was found in the message of the gospel. And they hindered the people from going after the truth. They wanted words that made sense to them. They didn't want the words of Jeremiah. They didn't want the words of Ezekiel. They didn't want the words of Amos, of Elijah, of Elisha. They didn't want the, the, the words of the prophets. What, is, what, what do they tell the prophets? Prophesy to us smooth things, things that we can digest, things that speak about Israel's prosperity. Speak to us about that. Don't talk to us about judgment, Assyria, and Babylon, and all of that. We don't want to hear that. Don't you hear that coming from so many people in the church today? Don't tell us about judgment and sin and hell and wrath and holiness and righteousness. Just tell us how to be a good person. I mean, look at his church, how big it is. That's his message. Well, Israel was an entire nation who had abandoned the truth. And what Jesus is saying here is he says, look, from now on, he says, your house will be left desolate. Incredible. Your house, meaning their sanctuary, the temple, will be decimated. It would be desolate. It would be Ichabod. The glory had long departed, but Jesus is saying that their rejection, their murder of Jesus Christ was the final linchpin. It was the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the final sign of apostasy. It was the ultimate covenantal affront to God. Incredible. And he says this, and notice this, and this is a very controversial uh, uh, a verse here. He says, for, he says, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Quoting a psalm. What's that talking about there? Is he saying that when Jesus returns, all the Jewish people will finally say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God, our Messiah has come. No. I would venture to agree with the commentators like William Hendrickson and others that would say, no, 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 what this is is a parallel to something like Philippians chapter 2 where there Paul says, quoting Scripture again, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In other words, by this time it will be too late. It will be too late and it will be a forced confession upon the unbelieving world. Think about that, folks. Every vile, God-rejecting, Christ-hating, you know, church-persecuting personality that you can think of, celebrity, politician, whatever, dictator, should they be alive at the parousia, should they be alive at the second coming, the second coming will be so overwhelming and so awful that they will trembling fall to their knees and they will utter the words that Jesus is Lord. They will say, He is truly Lord. But it will be too late because it says He will destroy His enemies with the brightness of His coming. It's not an altar call. Second coming is not an altar call, folks. The second coming is flaming fire and retribution. The the second coming is an angry Christ coming to earth to destroy His enemies. You won't make it on Fox News with that theology. But it is what the Bible teaches, I believe. What about Romans 11? You say, we have time for Romans 11? (laughs) No, we don't, (laughs) sadly. But what about Romans 11? Isn't that the reinstitution of the Jewish people that in the end they will get saved? Let me just say this, and you're probably going to get a little upset at me because I don't have time to develop this, but 
Romans 11 is not the reinstitution of Israel's national kingdom privileges from the typological age of the past. That's over. That ran its course. We're not returning to that again. Now, when a Jew gets saved, and let's say that prior to the parousia, that Jews will come into the church in mass, when they come into the church, they do not reconstitute again as the nation Israel of the Old Covenant and of the Old Testament. Now they come into the trunk of salvation, which is Jesus Christ, and they become part of what? The international new covenant people of God, the church. And you know what dispensational theologians will tell me? It's like, man, I know I'm going to get in trouble for this message. <laughs> I was studying going, oh man, I'm in trouble. But you know what, you know what dispensationalists will tell me? Is that they will say that, that no, 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 no. They, in fact, they will come back and, and, and the Davidic kingdom will be reinstituted and everything will go back to the way it was. It's just absolute insanity. Insanity to think that we're going to return back to the shadows. When we have the substance, we have the image, we have the very person of Jesus Christ here. So much so that according to Paul and the apostles, now to celebrate the feast, to engage in circumcision, to engage in old covenant you know, sacrifices, that's all blasphemous now. You know what evangelicals on the, web, on, on the internet are doing right now? They are celebrating the potential of a rebuilt temple. <laughs> what? According to Jesus, that place became a den of thieves. According to Jesus, not one stone would be left upon another. Why? Because he had, he had publicly renounced it. Ichabod, brothers and sisters, if they rebuild that temple, it will be as pagan as the mosque that sits on the temple mound right now. So I am definitely not invited to the next dispensational convention. That's because I believe in the true Israel. That's because I believe that Jesus Christ fulfills all God's promises and that all God's promises are yes in Him. They are amen in Him and that the church of Jesus Christ is the new Jerusalem. It is Zion. It is the city of the living God, the church of the firstborn. It is a holy temple to the Lord being built up by living stones made up of Jews and Gentiles together. So now if a Jew, like Paul, See, when you preach a message like this, immediately the reaction is, well, you're anti-Semitic. Hello? A Jew wrote this, not me. <laughs> and so what I tell people now is, look, to be, a, to be a Jew and be saved today means that you will be like Paul. You will come into the new covenant church and your identity is no longer oriented towards the Torah your identity is now oriented in Christ. You are a new creation in Him. Paul says, you know, I, I, I've died and, I, you know, and I'm alive now in Him. The life that on I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me, gave Himself for me. His identity was Christ, Christ, Christ. He wasn't trying to revive the old order. Can I give you one more verse? You won't get mad at me. Acts chapter 15. Because this brings up such a huge can of worms. But I want to challenge you, especially if you have some sort of conflict in your mind right now. It's like, I hear what you're saying, but I grew up believing that, you know, the Jews are going to come back and Israel will be reborn and it's going to be like kind of, you know, Old Testament 2.0. It's not. Let me show you just one verse, okay? This is where all the apostles are gathered together to the Jerusalem council. And what happens here? What happens here? 
is that James finally stands up to speak and he talks about the Gentiles coming into the church because the original New Covenant church was Jewish originally. And then all these Gentiles are getting saved and these Jews are freaking out because they're going, what do we do with all these Gentiles? They're all believing in our Messiah. And uh, James says, no, 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 no. Peter, Simon, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Watch this now. With this, the words of the prophets, notice plural, prophets agree. And then he cites one prophet. Okay? But what he's saying is that all the prophets agree with this. Exhibit one, Amos. So he quotes Amos 9 to substantiate his claims. And what is it that he's quoting in Amos 9? Look at verse 16. After these things I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen. By the way, the tabernacle of David actually refers to the, te- the, the, the temple. He will rebuild the temple of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. What is James saying? What James is saying is that the fulfillment of this prophecy is that Jew and Gentile together are building the end time temple of God. And that that's what Amos was ultimately looking at. He wasn't talking about a future architectural structure. He was talking about a spiritual structure. Namely, the church. Amen? So everybody convinced, now everybody on the covenantal level, great. <laughs> I'm open for questions after the sermon, by the way. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, the study of your word is so rich, it's so profound. At times, it introduces questions that are perplexing Questions that are difficult, admittedly, Lord, theological differences that are made. And Father, we just want to think your thoughts after you. We just want to follow the clear teaching of Scripture. But we are so grateful today that you have chosen to build an end time structure made up of souls, that you love Jew and Gentile together that you are building a a holy temple to the Lord, that you are building a, a structure comprised of every nation and tribe and people for your name. That is truly, truly remarkable. And in that, Lord, we find our salvation. We're grateful that the promise of Abraham has reached down to those of us who are alive today, who are filled with your Spirit, who've been given forgiveness of sin, washed by your blood so that we can say with John that Jesus redeemed a people out of every tribe and tongue, people and nation, and that collectively we are the people of God. Lord, remind us of how glorious the gospel is. Remind us how gracious it is that it is not confined to one people. Oh, Lord, we're so thankful that you and your mercy and your sovereign grace that you purposed to save people from all of humanity for yourself. If not, Lord, we would all have perished. And so we're grateful, Lord, that you have extended your mercy and grace. And that salvation, as Paul says, that was to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. We're grateful to be in that number, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.